have Will Weber preach to us today. Um, he is happily married to a wife of 25 years, and uh, they have five children who are all here. I know that one lives in Nevada, and one uh, is going to school out in the Quad Cities, so they're all here. And he has a passion for ministry, for helping others grow in their love for Jesus. He's lived in Rockford for 15 years, as, um, as a, and he's profession is an engineer, and I know from Steve and Yvonne that they, he and their family have been an incredible uh, blessing and friends to, to, the, to the Brandon family. So welcome, Will, and come preach your word. Thanks, Darren. I wouldn't be boasting or telling you anything new by saying that life is complex. Yesterday we were at a graduation ceremony of my fourth child, and um, we were at the reception, and I heard these words, does anyone own description of my car? And when you hear that, and you know that your car does not leave its lights on, it's automatic, you know it's not a good scene. To his credit, this very young graduate um, made a mistake and uh, to his credit, that he and his friends came and found the owner of the car. And so he and his dad and me, we went out to the parking lot to assess the damage. And that required some, some soberness. We were just having festivities inside. And so life is complex. Sometimes you have to have this reverent time. And sometimes it's time to just celebrate. And yesterday they kind of collided. And so life is complex. I felt bad for the young man. He just, he just graduated. And now this happens. So. so. At times we see these things very uh, separated. We get very serious about things. And it's kind of like the American Gothic. We feel like if you're really smart about life, then you're very serious and you got the pitchfork, and you never smile, and that's supposed to be a really good thing. And then we have this other side, and some people are maybe more that way. Then we have these other people who are more like the cheerleaders. Every day is a party, and nothing is serious. So, it can be just downright goofy. Uh, my in-laws, one, uh, one of which is actually here, they throw a party once in a while, and they invite their friends, and to one friend, they'll invite, they'll send them an invitation, very formal, and it's black tie, wear your tuxedo, it's a very formal evening. But to another friend, they'll send a very goofy invitation that says, wear your beach attire, we're going to have a, a light time. And they all come, like, and they're all different. And just imagine the, the, the mashup of all these people going, they have a, now only they can do it, it's really a great time. But I never would have thought of that, the engineer. So we tend to see these things as so, such a dichotomy, as we're super serious, reverent, sober, and then we have 
the celebration, the goofiness. And perhaps it needn't be so, so separated. Perhaps you see yourself on one side or the other. Nobody's jabbing each other, hopefully. Or perhaps uh, sometimes when we were raising children, we tend to fall on one side or the other. I know I did. And so life is complex. You have these two different aspects. And these issues seem to be addressed by one of the psalmists. When long ago he, he put his writing utensil to whatever he would write on, and he penned a poem that, that treats these kinds of issues together. And we're going to look at that today. The psalms are interesting. A lot of us probably think they're some of the favorite scriptures for us. Uh, they're unique in a, a certain way because all scripture is revelation from God. But the Psalms are special because they're revelation from God through the experience of men and women, and sometimes very raw emotion. And so they tend to be scripture that we really relate to quite readily, and that's why they're so much of our favorites. Some people think that uh, because of this personal nature of the Psalms that they're, they're not to be preached from. They're too, uh, too personal, too individual. But really, it's that very aspect which makes them so essential. This particular psalm was written uh, probably for the Passover. It's called an Egyptian psalm, and you'll see why. When they were called out of Egypt, and they would go uh, back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and that's when they would sing or recite this psalm. And so as we look at this psalm, we want to ask ourselves a question. How should I respond to God's deliverance? Or put another way, what, what difference should it make that God has so powerfully rescued me? We're going to try to understand what the psalmist uh, said and, and what he really felt. If uh, you can open to Psalm 114, uh, if you want to use one of the Pew Bibles, that's on page 510. Uh, For sake of the poetry, um, I'm going to put some of it on the projector. And so we can read Psalm 114. When the Israelites escaped from Egypt... When the family of Jacob left that foreign land, the land of Judah became God's sanctuary, and Israel became its kingdom. The Red Sea saw them coming and and hurried out of their way. The waters of the Jordan turned away. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What's wrong, Red Sea, that made you hurry out of the way? What happened, Jordan River, that you turned away? Why, mountains, did you skip like rams? Why, hills, like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. He turned the rock into a pool of water. Yes, a spring of water flowed from solid rock. Darren said, all of my children are here in town today and here today. I picked one of them up Friday afternoon. 
We had been corresponding during the week, and I said it would be Psalm 114 this weekend, and he, he read that. So in the car, we're driving back to the house, and he says, now about this, this Psalm 114, did, did you pick that? Or were you assigned that? Like, what, like what is this? And I know what he's getting at. So when we come to a psalm like this, it's, it's poetry. We have to put our poetry glasses on. Do we have any poets in the room? People sort of eat and drink and think and breathe poetry? Not too many. Maybe not any. Okay. Well, we'll walk through some of the poetry then so we can appreciate what the psalmist was trying to convey. Because uh, the psalm... Psalms, uh, it's the biggest book of the Bible, and so it makes me think that there's probably even a little bit of poet in all of us, even if you wouldn't raise your hand. We'll find out. Poetry is different. Poetry is expression by um, no rules, or different rules. So uh, we would say Johnny came to dinner. But the poet could say, to dinner, Johnny came. And that's okay. They get to break all the rules. Because the, the poet's trying to convey an idea, not propositionally. He's not just stating the fact. He's not just going to say it. They have to kind of go around and give us images and figures of speech to make us come to the idea that they want us to have. So we have uh, roses are red, violets are blue. Everyone knows that. And so that sets up an image. There's going to be something uh, beautiful or true coming. A lot of jokes have been made from that one, but you get the idea, everybody's heard of it. Our poetry tends to have rhyme and meter. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. I don't finish that one, it's too sad. <laughs> but you hear the, the, the rhythm, the timing, and that's typical for the, the poetry we have. Hebrew poetry is very different. It doesn't go after timing and, and sound so much of rhyming, but it goes after parallel ideas, parallel ideas, thoughts. And we'll see that very clearly today. To help us, I've, I've thrown some color on the, on the screen. And so you can see the, the parallel ideas. In verse 1, there's the uh, Israelites escaped from Egypt, followed by the family of Jacob left a foreign land. The foreign land is Egypt, and the Israelites are the family of Jacob. So it's all in red, so those are the two parallels. We call them a couplet. The second verse, the land of Judah became God's sanctuary, followed by, and Israel became his kingdom. So if Judah and Israel, now be careful, we're not going to dissect this. We're not trying to figure out the difference between Judah and Israel, like you might do in Paul's writings or something. But here the psalmist is just saying it again to give you the clear image. And the uh, second, we'll call it a strophe, there's four strophes. The Red Sea, 
uh, saw them coming and turned away, the water of the Jordan turned away. So we have the Red Sea and the Jordan, and they're both turning away. See the parallelism? I mean, I mean, this is poetry that even an engineer can appreciate. The, the precision, and the whole thing is a series of couplets. With great discipline, the poet went, went about to write this, this uh, idea that he wants to convey. So the poetry is throughout every portion of the psalm. And so you need to sort of put your poetry glasses on to, to get this. Otherwise, you're just a bunch of descriptions. When we get to verse 4, uh, the mountains skipped like rams. That's a hard one. Mountains form the foundation of the world. Uh, mountains are pretty stable, pretty reliable. But if mountains are, are sort of skipping like rams, if the, like lambs, sort of, they try to run around, that's not normal. It's shaking, it's quaking. So it's suggesting uh, an, earthquake, an earthquake, something's very uh, unstable. And so that's describing probably what happened at Mount Sinai when the Lord met with Israel and there was smoke and fire and quaking. These things were happening. So the imagery there with the mountains is clear. And then uh, 5 and 6 are some repeating a little bit. And then we get to verse 7 where it tells us, the psalmist is saying, Tremble, O earth. At the presence of the Lord. Again, see the, the parallelism. The presence of the Lord, the presence of the God of Jacob. And then he gives us another very powerful image in, in the last verse. So he's leading us a little bit along. There's, a, there's more structure. Let's look at the second, the middle two strophes. Because this the structure is so parallel, you have to see it. Every, every line in 3 and 4 with 5 and 6 addresses it, the other. So where the Red Sea saw them coming, verse 5, what's wrong, Red Sea? What happened? Five questions are being asked. And so what caused these miraculous things to happen? The psalmist is trying to, without telling you, He's trying to get, get that to become evoked out of you as you think through the ideas he's bringing. In fact, there's only one, one portion that's not following a very strict regimen here. Can you see it? There's really only one statement that's not in color. And so the poet is using that. Sometimes it's what breaks the routine that becomes emphasized. So what's emphatic here is tremble. Tremble, O earth. The psalmist is saying, when we came out of Egypt, we became God's people. God was with us. And we knew it because of these miracles. The Red Sea turned back. The Jordan opened up. The mountains quaked. Why, 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 why? Tremble, O earth. 
if these things could tremble and stop up and the waters would part, shouldn't the whole earth at the presence of the Lord? That's the thought flow that the psalmist is trying to bring us through. Which leads us to find some meaning in the psalm. We put our little poetry glasses on and we get some observations like this. And what does it mean? So we find some theology in the psalm. In the first couple of verses, Israel is being identified based on God's deliverance. They were in bondage in Egypt. And God, you remember through the, the plagues with Pharaoh, finally he delivered them and brought them out of Egypt, out of that bondage. And so they're, they're identifying with God's deliverance. And then furthermore, they have these miracles that support that. And ultimately, it's a call for all creation to likewise tremble before this powerful presence. Now, in meaning, we, we come to this word tremble, and that's not a really popular word at all. Anybody use the word tremble this week? Last week? This month? This year? We've got one? I thought maybe two. All right. It's not a very popular word, but all the versions seem to use it. What does it really mean to us? Well, first, what does it mean to him? The psalmist used this word, tremble. And it means to just quake and shake like you're writhing uh, in fear or pain. As if it's in keeping with the deliverance from Egypt, from the massive uh, miracles that took place. So tremble, while it's not in our vernacular, it's like to quake in fear. So who knew about this? Well, Moses was at the Red Sea crossing. He was also at the burning bush in Exodus. And when he approached that burning bush, God spoke from the burning bush. And what did he say? Pick up your shoes for you're on holy ground. And Moses was fearful at the presence of the Lord. He trembled. Joshua knew what it meant to tremble. He was at the crossing of the Jordan River. He met the captain of the host, the man with the angel with a um, sword stretched out. And he said, are you for us or against us? Do you remember the situation? And he said, no, I'm here as the captain of the host. And he was told to take off his shoes. And so Joshua also learned to tremble there. And trembling took place, as we mentioned, in, in the mountains. But people were very fearful of the mountains when God was there revealing himself uh, to Moses. So you can see why the psalmist used these examples. Because God is awesome. It's only natural that you would fear him. But how, how can we fear him? Fear, the fear of the Lord is a difficult thing to say in one word. It comp comprises respect and awe and what we understand to be actually fear. But how do we take tremble in the New Testament light? 
The fear of the Lord is certainly a beginning of wisdom. But uh, reverence seems to have sort of a negative connotation these days. Like it's uh, unnecessarily stern if you're reverent. When I was in the military, I had a few uh, commanders who were, I truly respected. They were, they were kind, they were thoughtful, they took care of me. And I actually kind of felt close to them. But I would never cross the line. I would always give them military courtesy. I would never presume on them for anything. It was just a natural expression of my appreciation of who, who they were. And so I, I, I trembled. I was reverent because they deserved it. And so if that's true of, of, of a merely an earthly military commander, what about the God of heaven? That's what the psalmist is trying to get us to understand. What does it mean to be in the presence of the Lord? In their day, uh, wearing their togas, you know, seeing the burning bush and the miraculous deliverance, it was, it was terrifyingly obvious what it meant to be in the presence. But that's not the same today. Anybody seen a burning bush lately? It's quite different. So in the New Testament, uh, thanks to what the Lord Jesus has done on the cross and, and the, the pouring out of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God indwells the Christian. And so where, where is God? When are we in, in the presence of the Lord? When are we not in the presence of the Lord? So being in his presence is really more a matter of recognition than our physical position or location. We can illustrate this. Most of us are familiar with children and how they behave. Think of children unsupervised. And then think of children when their parents are there. They're in the presence of the authority that can take care of them. And they behave differently. Not just children. Uh, at the workplace. On the job. Does anything change when the boss shows up? It sure does. That's, that's it being in the presence of. You're a, completely aware that the authority figure is present. It seems like every, every four years or more, we have a little faux pas on the television because someone's got a microphone and they're not aware that the mic is on. And the whole world gets to hear something very embarrassing or insulting. The mic is always on. We're in the presence of the Lord. The, the, the camera's always running. The boss is always present. And that's not in a stern, stern way. It's just a reality. That's what we need to understand. Trembling is thinking and acting, recognizing the Lord's presence. So how does that affect, say, decision-making? I can see someone in one of the rows here that I know, and she uh, is a gifted photographer. 
And she was granted um, a great scholarship to go to school. And that looked really great for a long time until she really analyzed all the factors in the presence of the Lord and decided that the direction it was going to take, the financial burden it might bring upon, all these things put together in trembling. After having received a standing ovation in front of her whole school, she declined it. That takes some trembling to make that kind of a decision. I don't think it's been a mistake. Um, yeah, in the same row, there was a young lady at Bible study, and uh, she's pretty cute. And I understood from our host that that um, that time, this was 25, 26 years ago, that uh, she was struggling with an issue. And I also understood that she was before the Lord about it, and she said, "If, if this is this is in the Bible, it's in the Word of God, I'm going to do it." Check with me next week. And I thought, man, I'm attracted to that too. And so we've been married for 25 years. And that's one of the things that's really attractive. Someone who's going to submit themselves, tremble at the word of God. A lot of personal stories today, but I think that's because I don't know any of you. Uh, But that's kind of the point. I'm never going to be a Hudson Taylor, a George Mueller, Billy Graham, Alice Gladys Alward, you know. But I can be me. I can do what the Lord wants me to do if I tremble. If I live in light of the Lord's presence, like the psalmist is telling us. And so it can affect what we do. You know, how how you play the piano, how you greet people at the door, uh, how you play the guitar here, how you carry on a conversation, how we make our decisions, how we choose a college, a job, a car, a spouse. We need to tremble for all these things. So perhaps that could be homework for us, since uh, I don't know many of you that you could discuss amongst yourselves as, your, as families, you know, who, who, who exemplifies this? Who has done this? So this becomes a normal uh, way of thinking for us. So made this decision. That was, that's the way to do it. And I fear that we, we tend to kind of belittle this. We think, well, what you're talking about is really kind of like brownie points. This is like for extra credit. But no, the psalmist is saying that this is for everything. Let's look again at verse 8. After saying tremble, he uses this example of the Lord's huge, just tremendous power. He turned the rock into a pool of water. Yes, a spring of water flowed out of solid rock. Now clearly an example of power, miraculous happening. Something as dry as rock does not bring forth water. But it did then. And so that's in keeping with the miraculous power that God has. 
But do you remember where that came from? That situation? That's in Meribah, when the people were complaining, they got thirsty, and they, got, they were just complaining. And God says, okay, I'll take care of it. You go to this area, there's a big, big rock, you speak to the rock, and water's going to rush out of that thing. And so what does Moses do? He doesn't speak to the rock. He strikes the rock twice. Water comes flowing out. Nobody really knows what they are made. They got their water. So that's taken care of. But there's a little, little side issue to look after. Moses did not tremble. says that he treated, he failed to treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. That's what he did. That's all. What were the consequences? For that breach, he was denied entrance into the promised land. He was the leader of Israel. He was the one to take them in. He brought them out to take them in. No. And so the point is, it's not extra credit. This is, this is the real thing. We need to tremble. Moses failed at that in that one point, and for that one thing, he could not enter the promised land. That's what's at stake. So I submit that we need to learn to tremble as a way of life. To live with the awareness that God is present. How that will change us. It's really easy to to, to forget. We uh, have a Sunday night Bible study. And before we start, the first thing we do, it's it's step number one, is we, we, we tremble. We ask for help. We're recognizing that this is the word of God that we're looking at. And we need his help for illumination. And this is just our habit. We do it every week. So last week, we get the, the study started, and I'm sort of coordinating, and I skip it. Just, just go to the next, next thing. And a young man across the room makes a motion like, God. I was like, ooh. So we fixed it. Point is, it's just, we get so busy. Life is complex. We're so distracted. Community is helpful. And so I'm thankful that people have the, the liberty and the opportunity to, to, to correct me, to say, hey, we forgot something. And I think we need that liberty with each other. You know, did you tremble before you made that decision? Just, just asking. Because we can't do it on our own. Parents, friends, it's, it's hugely important. I know someone who has uh, on their Bible, when you fly, the, they, will, they will pray on the, the leaf of the Bible. So whenever they go to open it, they're reminded to pray. Maybe there's things that you have that can be a reminder to help you do this on a regular basis. 
And at this stage, uh, we talk about trembling before God. Uh, judgment. Moses, you know, met some judgment there. There's in a group this large. There's probably people here who have really never trembled, never really seen themselves in front of a, a holy God who condemns sin and will judge it eternally. And so a lot of this probably doesn't make sense in that case. If, you've, if you're in that case, you need to, to recognize what the psalmist is saying. A God of infinite power judges sin. And you need to tremble. Repent, confess your sin, because there's nothing like having the assurance and knowing your sins are forgiven. So if that's your case today, there's a lot of people here who can answer your questions. If you have some hindrance to that, please ask. Nothing would be more important. Which brings us to the, the second portion of this and the last idea. We, we've gone through the psalm, we put our glasses on, we kind of understand what the poetry is about, and it led us to this meaning where it's about trembling. I mean, if all these things happened, the whole earth should be trembling. But if we stop there, it seems to me that we're missing something. The, psalm, the psalmist wrote this with some emotion. And so we sometimes need to step back to see that. If we were in Paris at the Musée de Louvre, and we were looking at the Mona Lisa, we might get up really close, and we might look at the brush strokes and see the, the, the colors merging and the different techniques used on the canvas and what type of canvas it was on and these sorts of things. But we really have to back up to see that smile that's so famous and to see the, the portrait of this woman. The beauty is in it when you back up. So if we take this psalm, we try to feel what the psalmist felt. And to do that, we've, we've got meaning from the psalm. Let's try to find meaning from the psalmist. And so let's reread it, having understood these observations we've already made, and see what we learn from the writer himself. Because he's trying to magnify not just an idea, but an emotion, a feeling. Do you know what it is? When the Israelites escaped from Egypt, when the family of Jacob left that foreign land, the land of Judah became God's sanctuary, and Israel became his kingdom. The Red Sea saw them coming and turned out of the way. The water of the Jordan turned away. The mountains stopped like rams, the hills like lambs. What's wrong, Red Sea, that made you turn out of the way? What happened, Jordan River? you turned away. Why mountains did you skip like lambs? Why hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. He turned the rock into a pool of water. Yes, a spring of water flowed from solid rock. This is being read as they go up to Jerusalem. 
It's a high point. You're always going up to Jerusalem from any direction. They're going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They're excited. They read, when the Israelites escaped from Egypt, they became God's sanctuary. That's like, yes! Our God rocks! He's ours. That's what the psalmist is getting into. Bragging about these miracles that took place. It's almost, he's almost teasing it out. What's wrong, Red Sea? You're huge. Nothing stops you. Except something. Jordan River, same thing. Mountains never tremble. He's teasing this out. Tremble, O earth. So he is He's celebrating. He's going up to celebrate the Passover, and this is his poem. Certainly he was familiar with Deuteronomy 4, 7, and 8, which says, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord God is to us? Whenever we call upon him. Verse 8. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. They became, Israel became his kingdom. They were under his rule. At the mountain is when they got all that revelation. And so he is excited. He's celebrating, seeing this on the way up to Jerusalem. And so he's celebrating God and the unchangeable relationship that they have with him. Their identity was wrapped up in the deliverance that he speaks of in verse 1 and 2. And so we, this is kind of foreign to most of us. And so at risking uh, profaning the text, uh, think about Packer fans. We probably have some present. And th- they get kind of excited We've had some over and watched some games and sometimes they don't even sit down. They're true fanatics. They just are so excited that the team that they represent, that represents them, that they're into, they just get excited. Up a basketball, anybody watch the Villanova, the last minute of the Villanova championship? Did you see the bedlam that broke out? Were they excited? Some of us are older. How about 1980? United States of America versus USSR hockey. A miracle on ice. Wow. Will we ever forget? Talk about celebrating. I'm not the biggest sports addict, but uh, some of our kids were into robotics. And so... We went up to Wisconsin for a competition. Fifty-some teams were there, and it's, it's really hard. And um, We won. I'm telling you, even an engineer got emotional. <laughs> it was tremendous. And so, you know, it's possible. It's in here somewhere. But often it's just not really associated with our relationship with the God who delivers us. Do you see a disconnect there? Somehow it's, it's not cool, or, or we, we become very reserved. We become, you know, the little pitchfork comes out, 
and we get, you know, we're just as kind of quiet about it. When sometimes you need to be the cheerleader, because it's exciting. Sometimes we, sometimes we sing, and we sing as if all we can think about is what's for lunch. You know? Not always, but... And so the, the point is to celebrate. Many of the hymns that we sing are really talking about the same thing that the psalmist was. Deliverance. Fantastic. I mean, which psalmist are thinking, well, I'm just a mediocre singer, I don't know. No, 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 you encourage everyone else when you open your mouth and, and sing. If it were somebody's birthday and we sang happy birthday, who wouldn't just join in, right? Same thing. Sometimes like kids, we become well, almost teenagers and they get too sophisticated to hang with their parents, right? I think we do that as Christians. When you begin to too sophisticated, and we just mellow out. We need to be excited. If we cannot celebrate together on Sunday or whenever we gather, something might be a little wrong. And so lastly, the point is that the psalmist had uh, these emotions. He was excited at the beginning. There's a declaration of his dependence and having God rule. There's great boldness in understanding the, the miracles that have taken place. And finally, that, that to magnify God's rule everywhere. So we, that's what we learned from the psalmist, because that's what he was experiencing when he wrote this poem. So the challenge is really to put this together. Some of us can very easily throw a party and be the cheerleader, smile all the time. Some of us are really good at, no, make sure you get this right, you forgot something, being very serious, very reverent. You know, and the idea, we tend to go to one or the other. Or we'll say, let's have a balance. It's not a balance, it's not either or, it's both. We have to have both. And we see them both in this psalm. The psalmist wrote this poem to move us toward trembling in the presence of the Lord, but he was actually celebrating as he communicated it and lived it out. And so what difference should it make in our lives? Really, let us respond to God's deliverance with both reverence and celebration. Our Father, we're... Uh, grateful for the psalmist because they, re- they relate to us and our emotions and our struggles. Help us to um, become more like they are. That our inner poet might come out. That we might really relate as a whole person to what God has revealed. Uh, bless our day. Help us encourage one another in these things we're thankful for who you are. You're a good, good father, and we're grateful. Amen.